Hugo Bowne Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, it is with great pleasure that I'm speaking with my dear old friend Eric Ma about research data science in biotech. So Eric leads the research team in the data science and artificial intelligence group at Moderna Therapeutics. Prior to that, Eric was part of a special ops data science team at the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Researchers Informatics Department, otherwise known as NIBA. In this episode, Eric and I will be talking about what research data science actually looks like in biotech, including what tools and techniques they use for drug discovery, such as mRNA vaccines and medicines, the importance of machine learning, deep learning, and Bayesian inference, how to think more generally about such high-dimensional multi-objective optimization problems, the importance of open source software and Python. If that's not enough, we'll also be talking about institutional and cultural questions, including hiring and the trade-offs between being an individual contributor and a manager. And we'll also talk about how they're approaching accelerating discovery science to the speed of thought using computation, data science, statistics, and machine learning. And we'll let you know what that means as we dive in. So a bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, although that may change soon. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. Also, this episode was recorded as a YouTube live stream, so when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have more such live streams, and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. How are you, my friend? It's good to see you, man. It's great to see you as well. Welcome, everyone, once again to this live recording of Vanishing Gradients, where we'll be talking about research data science in biotech. I will want to jump in and hear about you from you, of course, but I thought I would just introduce you. If I get anything wrong, you can let me know. But Eric leads the research team in the data science and artificial intelligence group at Moderna Therapeutics. Prior to that, Eric was part of a special ops data science team. I'm thinking like Mission Impossible 5 there um, at the Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research's informatics department. And we're going to be talking today about what research data science actually looks like in biotech, including what type of questions you think about and answer, what tools and techniques you use for drug discovery, the importance of ML, deep learning, Bayesian inference, open source software, Python, all of these things, also thinking about cultural and career concerns and institutional questions such as hiring, trade-offs between being an individual contributor and a manager, and also how you're approaching your mission, which is accelerating discovery science to the speed of thought. Um, so there's a lot of meat to get into today, but I thought we could start by you giving us just a bit of background in how you 
got into data science and the data world in the first place? Kind of your origin story, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. First off, those are that was a very flattering introduction. Thanks, Hugo. Absolutely. So I I got into the data world during my PhD days. I had just I was in the midst of switching advisors, switching research groups. And in, in the process of coming up with a thesis, I wanted to work on something more computational rather than more wet lab oriented. And so there was a long, long, long story behind how I got into the, the data world. But to condense it down for the audience today, it's basically I went to the Boston Python meetup group. I had some thesis ideas. I pitched one of those ideas to an, a bioinformatic, bioinformatics software engineer. At the time, his name is Giles Hall, and he worked for the Broad Institute at that point. And I pitched an idea to him about clustering influenza genes. And he came back to me with this idea that I should use the affinity propagation algorithm in scikit-learn. And keep in mind, I had only two months of Python experience back then. So he was asking a two-month-old Pythonista to do machine learning. Amazing. And so just for clarity, my, I, I am interested in how people pick up computational skills. So you were working in biology in wet lab stuff and started picking up these skills. And just for a bit more clarity, you were and still are in Boston area, which is yeah one of the great and was one of the great places to be for biology, biotech, all of these types of things with, you know, the Broad Institute, for example, where you were. Yeah, 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 that's right. So I had two months of Python behind me and I was like mostly interested in just automating some very tedious PCR primer design work. Uh, we don't need to go too deep into that, but it's basically a lot of copying and pasting and switching letters, which can be totally automated by a computer. And so I had, I used previously picked up Java skills to try to make that happen, but really wasn't doing anything fancy at that point. So picking up Python, I had a little bit of Java, like one undergrad Java class to help me pick that up, right? But most of it was working with a like I had been in the bio world for so long that computation was still a very different mindset, different frame of mind, really. So it took me quite a bit of time after I switched advisors to like really get my Python skills up to where they are today. But back then, it was <laughs> search stack overflow for all of the errors that would show up in a Jupyter notebook at that time. And bang my head against the computer <laughs> a lot and try different things. Yeah. I'll ask you this. When you were doing this, were there Jupyter Notebooks yet? Or were you working in IPython Notebooks? Was this pre-Jupyter? Ah. Pre <laughs> this was pre-Jupyter, yes. It was IPython. Yeah. I, just, I think IPython Notebooks had just come out. This was 2013. And I do remember I was working in an IPython-like environment. I can't remember exactly. The details are fuzzy for me now, whether I was like in the spider IDE or I was like doing something else. It's a little difficult to remember now. Yeah. And I don't only ask that to be a smart aleck or anything along those lines. I think my what I want to get to is the fact that this is actually a serious inflection point in the ability of biologists and other research scientists to do computation. When the IPython notebook came out and we already had a bit of Matplotlib, a bit of Pandas, scikit-learn was being developed, these, these types of things. So it was this confluence of all these tools and technologies that allowed not necessarily super computational research scientists to then start doing computational science. Yeah, that's right. And I do remember doing a lot of scripting as well. But the Jupyter notebooks were or the IPython notebooks at that time were really helpful for me because I'd run a bit of code, get immediate feedback and know whether the thing was I was doing was right or wrong, which then 
was another huge decision point for me in switching out from the wet lab to the dry lab. That's because the turnaround time for feedback on the dry lab is at worst minutes. Whereas the feedback time for knowing whether something is workable or not in the wet lab is at best like weeks, right? Like bacteria cultures take a week for you to know whether your experiment design produced an engineered result that you're going for versus like coding something up in a cell in a iPython notebook or Jupyter notebook cell. And, you know, within 30 seconds, you know exactly whether you're on the right path or not, right? For, for the simplest of questions. And if you chain them together, it's like half a day at most, right? To, to know whether you're on the right path. So it's a big motivating factor for me. Amazing. And we met just after this time, I think, after you switched advisors and something I, I, I recall, I think we met at ODSC conference the first time, something along those lines, but you were teaching and it was already apparent that for your research and your work with Python and your work in data science and machine learning, community was quite important. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So when I was starting out, actually the Boston Python user group, BPUG, or BossPy as we know it, was really formative for me. The way I actually got into the tutorials, uh, teaching tutorials, was because Boston Python's leader, Ned Batchelder, <laughs> made a claim during one of the meetups where he's like, if you don't have, if you think you don't have a tutorial, talk to me, I will find your tutorial. He says the same things for talks. If you think you don't have a talk, talk with me, I'll find your talk for you. And so first year that I went to PyCon, I was actually, I heard about PyCon through the Boston Python user group. And I pitched an idea to Ned saying, I think I want to teach a thing about everything I've learned thus far about analyzing data with Python. And I was blown away by Ned's reception. It was very helpful. Like he encouraged, right? All the way through. And fortunately enough, like that tutorial was accepted the first year I went to PyCon as well. So I got to get a taste of like what it was like teaching Python programming and that sort of thing. And for those who were who wanted to do data analysis work and wanted to get into it, I guess at that time I was a uh, in the perfect position to do that teaching because I just experienced all of those challenges myself, right? Which is it's harder for me to empathize with the early beginning stages of picking up how to do analysis with Python nowadays. Uh, that's probably better taught by other people now, but like back then it was like perfect timing. And from then onwards, as my research got more and more into network analysis methods and stuff, then I switched over the tutorials to network analysis. And what was really cool is this. I was using the tutorials as an outlet to learn the methods because there's no better way to learn network, learn something than by teaching it. Agreed completely. And then people would be curious about how I was using network analysis methods. And of 100 people I would speak with, three to five of them would kind of take an interest in what my thesis was and would also provide feedback on how I should probably do my research, right? And so that, that became another part of the community, interacting with the community and such, and how that has really benefited me as well. And so, as you mentioned, it's like being part of a broader community has been really helpful. And those are just two little vignettes on like how it's been helpful for me and how I try to like give back as well. Yeah, they're wonderfully illustrative. So I'd love to know then after grad school, how you transition to industry. Yeah, lots of PhDs are doing that nowadays. I did apply for a few postdoc positions and I was turned down for them. Those were the kind of positions which were more, much more independent. And so when I was turned down for those positions, the choice for me was pretty clear, just go out into the industry. And 
I guess a few, there were a few conversations that were formative for me. I had a friend, Nick Barrow, who went to Janssen Pharmaceuticals. He was a postdoc and he was also at the Harvard School of Public Health and at the Boston Python user group at that time. He was a postdoc at the time. He told me about the postdoc life and told me about his desire to move out into industry. Then he did the Insight Data Science program and he was raving about it, right? And, and so I was like, well, okay, I want to try it too. So he did it in 2015, I think went to Janssen and now lives in like Pennsylvania. I went to the Insight program in 2017, summer. And also I went there primarily with the goal of making friends because I knew that if I were to just jump into the industry straight away, I would go in with my network size being zero. Whereas if I went in uh, having done Insight, my network size would be immediately 25. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the Insight fellowship is essentially a boot camp designed for graduate level scientists trying to break into industry. So it's actually quite relatively specific compared to a lot of other boot camps you can do. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. And it's specific. The program I went through was the health data program. So we would get interview prep coaching as well. But we'd also have a bit of time to hack on a project. And that was one of the things that I wanted a bit of time to hack on a project that I had been having since grad school days, but never had the like time to finish it up and polish it up. So Insight was a good piece of chunk of time to let me do that. And then once I finished Insight, I found a role at the Novartis Institute for Biomedical Research. Now, that was my first role. As you mentioned, it was in a pretty special team. It's called, it, back then it was called the uh, Scientific Data Analysis Team. Uh, and I was hired in as one of four people in the Cambridge site. And we also had like four colleagues in three or four colleagues in Basel as well. And then immediately I started going into what we would call research data science at this point, right? And that's because I would be working on projects that pertained to how we figure out what molecule to use, to develop, to hit a, a disease, to modify the course of a disease, right? And so that was kind of like my first role. And then I think three and a half years in, an opportunity came up at Moderna by one of my old friends who I met at the Broad Institute as well. And he eventually became my manager. So Andrew Giesel. And so I, we talked a lot about the tech stack at Moderna and how it was like really, really modern and how the impact was essentially platform level. So that caught a lot of interest for me. And so I decided to move the, make the switch. What does that mean? So if you think about mRNA, mRNA is a platform, right? So you can encode any protein you want and deliver it into a cell by put string together a sequence of letters, a sequence of nucleotides in mRNA. So because of that, you can actually, you get a platform for producing proteins inside the cell, right? So you don't have to go through a lot of complicated processes to make a protein outside of the human body, purify it to get, make sure that there are no dangerous substances in that are left inside there, you can kind of deliver just the mRNA directly and use the human cell as the factory that produces the therapeutic protein of interest. That's only one aspect of how Moderna has a really good platform. The other part of this is from the tech side. So by tech, I really mean like tech industry tech side. The tech stack is extremely modern. We can talk about that later. The most important part that I've seen about this is that the set of problems that the data science and artificial intelligence team works on are not those one-off kinds of problems, but 
they are recurring problems in the research space. They are problems that pertain to, we, we sort of go in and take a problem and try to abstract it to its platform-like level. Let me give you an example. If we talk about how do we find the protein sequence that we want to become the antigen inside our vaccines, and if you want to use machine learning methods to do this, you can do this without machine learning methods. But if you want to use machine learning methods to do it, to solve this problem, we don't go in and say, we're going to solve it for just the COVID-19 vaccine and then invent a completely new method for the flu vaccine and then invent a completely new method for the RSV vaccine, right? We don't do things that way. If we want to do protein design, we go in and we think about the problem in an abstract sense from like, how do we generate a protein sequence that does the thing that we want? from an experimental standpoint. Then we designed the computational method to be abstract enough to take in any kind of experimental data that is relevant for that protein of interest. And we design or incorporate from the open source world a protein generation module, a machine learning module that gets, spits out proteins for us and we hook them up in such a way that we can solve the problem once for COVID and reuse that exact same tooling for RSV, for influenza, for Zika, for whatever virus we want. And it doesn't even have to just be antigens for producing antibodies as well, for producing missing proteins in rare diseases, like putting that inside a, inside a patient. So we go in not solving problems in a one-off way for each of our colleagues, but we take a step back and we really think hard about it. What's the generic problem that we can solve over and over and over by using computational methods and we hammer hard on those methods. And that was refreshing for me. It takes a tech startup mentality to think that way. Absolutely. That's super exciting. I'm looking forward to jumping into all the, you know, details there. I do, I think now you are at Moderna, you lead the research team and I'm excited to talk about what that actually means later on and how that differs to being an IC. But I suppose you've given several examples, but it'd be nice to jump in and hear exactly what research data science in biotech means um, compared to other forms of data science even? Yeah, definitely. Data science in general, of course, is always about solving business problems. So research data science means that the, the subset of problems that we're trying to solve are in the biotech and pharma research space, right? So what exactly is uh, an anchoring framework for the kind of problems that we're looking to solve. So I think we should answer that question first. So when I first joined NIBR, one of my colleagues... And what, remind us what NIBR is? <laughs> Novartis, sorry. Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. When I first joined NIBR, one of my colleagues gave me a very useful framework for thinking about almost every single problem in the drug discovery space, which is you have a patient who's got a disease. Their disease, their body exists in a dysregulated state that we want to turn back to normal. For any disease, you want to find a target that you can hit. A target is a biological entity that is dysregulated or dysfunctional. It could be a missing protein, a misfolded protein, a missing RNA. It could be a mutated protein, any one of those things, right? And that causes the observed diseased state, right? So that's there's a link there that is the purview of data science methods as well, target indication matching. I don't do much of that because I think that's a problem that does require a lot more domain expert, like really specific domain expertise. However, there is a third axis here, which is molecule discovery. And molecule discovery is 
asking the question, which molecule should we use that can hit the target of interest and return that target from a dysfunctional or dysregulated state back into a normal state? So let me make this a little bit more concrete then. Let's say we're talking about enzyme replacement therapy for patients who are missing an enzyme in their body. We want to be able to, the target then would be that enzyme. The disease state might be something like phenylketouria, PKU. There are patients who can't produce, uh, can't metabolize a particular amino acid. And the molecule that we want is to find is a version of that protein that we can deliver into the human cells, that patient cells that will restore their ability to metabolize that amino acid, right? They can't metabolize it, so they're in a disease state. And so now we want to make sure that they're able to metabolize it by replacing the, the therapy. That is a protein molecule discovery problem. There are many variants of the target enzyme, which is, which is well known. I think it's a phenylalanine uh, hydroxylase. So you can have many variants of phenylalanine hydroxylase that can potentially do the thing that you want, but you also want to do make sure that it does a few other things. It shouldn't trigger an immune response inside your patient's body, right? Because if you replace the enzyme and now suddenly your immune system attacks those cells and you've got a worse problem than you had before, it shouldn't clump with other proteins inside the cell. It must work at the exact, ideally work at the level that replaces the original gene dosage of that in, inside, the hum, inside a patient. So finding out which variant to engineer and deliver is a huge problem because that is the space of possible variants for phenylalanine hydroxylase or any protein in general is just vast, right? The length of the protein already gives you the one set of possible number of mutations you can make. So like N choose one, then you can do combinations of mutations and choose two and choose three and choose four and choose five, right? Like, and it just goes exponentially large. If we were to try to design lab experiments to test all of N choose one, N choose two, N choose three, that experiment would be way too expensive to test for all properties of interest. So we have this hypothesis that machine learning methods can help us shortcut experimentation by guiding us onto sets of mutations that have a higher probability than random of being efficacious, safe, therapeutic, yada, yada, yada. Great. Yeah. I want to get into methods soon, but before, yeah, are there other, other examples such as imaging and vaccine antigens and that type of stuff, which... Yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned imaging because like imaging is another huge data modality, right? Like wet lab experimental data is one uh, where you get like sequence with number matching, but images are another huge data modality. If you think about, so when I, when I think about imaging, I think back to my undergrad days, this was 2008 when I was doing human like mouse pathology scoring in mouse experiments. It was semi-quantitative, but still very qualitative. And you needed at least two raters to go in and to look at, you know, look at an image of a mouse gut and figure out like how inflamed is this thing, right? When we're measuring cellular, when, sorry, when we're measuring things, sorry, imaging things in biology, one thing that's definitely common practice, at least from the 2010 to 2020 days that I had experienced was to take 
uh, crack ton of images, select a bunch that were representative and publish those as like part of the main figure and make conclusions based on those qualitatively determined <laughs> representative images. And that never felt satisfying. So one of the things, value props of like the data science world is that we can go in and we can bring a measure of systematization to how we look at images. Let's say you got a bunch of images of cells and inside there, there are subcellular structures for you, which you want to quantify how big are they, how abundant are they, and whether there's a, with an intervention inside the cell, whether there's an impact on the levels of that subcellular structure. In pre-data science days, you would go in and just like pick representative images and say, yeah, I think there was a difference. But nowadays, what we can do is we can go in, take each image, segment out exactly what those subcellular structures are, quantify exactly how many of those structures exist. We can get the full distribution within one cell and the full distribution across multiple cells. We can also quantify things like their spatial clustering, right? So how close together are they versus how diffuse are they within a cell? And all of those things are richer quantitative information that comes out of an image than just looking at two or three representatives. And this is reducing a lot of, this helps us reduce a ton of human variance and manual work in analyzing imaging data. Really, really is enabling. Absolutely. And I think we'll get to this in a, a bit, but I do think reducing manual work and kind of closing the loop in the work really does help accelerate discovery, science discovery to discovery science to the speed of thought or in, uh, along those lines. Yeah. I do think in terms of topical things, people are, are interested in how you think about um, vaccine discovery and that type of stuff. So maybe you could just tell us a bit about those types of questions. Yeah. So let me think about, so when I think about vaccine discovery, I personally don't think about it just in terms of vaccines, but in the more generic problem of how do we figure out what protein we want to deliver and code as mRNA, right? So I'm sure those who have more experience than I do in the vaccine world will have much more refined questions So than what I think about. Because what I'm really thinking about here is mostly the platform-like nature of figuring out what protein we want. So, But in terms of vaccines, I mean, we know the basics, right? They, got to, they have to trigger the desired immune response. So you actually do want to get a fever or a mild fever at least from your body when you inject a vaccine you do want to be able to make sure that like it doesn't cause catastrophic immune response as well so immune response can't go overboard that's undesirable it shouldn't do other things inside your body that are undesirable from a safety standpoint and it should look as close as possible to currently circulating viral strains right so which, which highlights, therefore, the importance of keeping funding available for genomic surveillance of pathogens. That's being deprioritized right now. So given that, I mean, that's I was in the flu world before, and I know how these funding cycles work. You get a pandemic, you get an injection of cash, and then once the pandemic goes away, that cash goes away, and all your surveillance infrastructure goes away. So it's not good. But that's a slightly different topic. When it comes to thinking about this from a data science perspective, I really think about figuring out how we can integrate the experimental wet lab data that tells us 
that the protein does exactly what it wants and reducing the cost of that experimentation, how to integrate the also the data that says this is the kind of immune response we don't want. And here's the biggest challenge. Usually, the ideal data that we want is not collectible. That's like... Right. Tell me about that. That's the hardest thing. So as an example, if we want to know whether an antibody that we engineer in the lab is going to be therapeutic for a particular cancer, you can... The ultimate test is to stick it inside a human and ask, does this work inside a human? But you can't do that experiment in the preclinical stage. That's not allowed. So by definition, that data that we would ideally like to have is not collectible. Then we go into like next level, second level proxies for that, for that data. We can create a mouse model of that tumor and give it, inject it with human tumor cells. Poor mouse. I don't like mice experiments, but that's the best we got. And then see whether the antibody also injected into the mouse causes a reduction in tumor size. That logically sounds like it would make sense, but it does not give us any guarantees that the thing will still work inside a human, right? Yeah. Then there's, there are other experiments that are more granular at the molecular level that you can design that can help with like figuring out, oh, will the antibody bind to the exact protein that we want, et cetera? We need to figure out how to be able to integrate all of these kind of experimental sources of data into our work to answer that question, like, which protein should we should we work? Which antibody sequence should we make? Right? Or like in the case of vaccines, it's a different set of questions, but it's still very diverse scales of granularity and relevance that are very difficult. And so one of the things that I've come to realize is that like in the research data science world, it's going to be really hard to convince scientists who are making these decisions about like what molecules take forward and stuff. You need domain expertise. Like you just have to be well-versed in the advanced analytical biochemistry methods that are used, the cellular molecular biology methods that are being used to test these hypotheses. And that's like almost a necessity for someone who wants to break into the research data science space. So it's very challenging to find that kind of person. That makes sense. And we'll talk a bit more about that when we get into hiring. We have a great question in the chat from Utkash. Cash up. Utkash asks, What's the current state of explainable and interpretable ML in the biotech industry, especially with uh, techniques like Bayesian optimization in high dimensions, which can be quite black box? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I think about explainability in the research space, from the perspective of a wet lab scientist, it's basically, if I increase X, what is the change in Y, right? That, so most people will think linearly. They will not think in terms of interactions. And it's very hard to interpret any model for the wet lab scientist, unless it's a linear model, right? Or unless it is well-established model of a biological phenomena. So if like, if you've got a system of differential equations, or if you've got a Markovian system, then you can use like differential equations or Markov, Markov models to model that system. And each parameter has like an exact interpretation. What's really cool about the biology space is that there's a rich wealth of well-established models that look like that, right? They have parameters that correspond exactly to the kind of biological or biochemical phenomena that we're interested in that comes from decades of quantitative biology, chemistry, research. That is the level that of familiarity that I expect from my teammates, right? And myself as well. 
when we're going into solving biological problems, it's not satisfying to go in and take Shapley values because Shapley values don't give us much actionable insight in the research space, right? Can you remind us what a Shapley value is? Shapley values come from like explainable AI. There's a wealth of literature. I'm blanking on the exact like mathematical definition of Shapley values, but it's a way of saying like which which features in my data set are contribute positively or negatively towards the final observed value. That actually is kind of useless for what we're really going for. Because when you work in the research space, you actually are working side by side with research scientists who are designing experiments. You have to know exactly what their levers are. Their levers are not, if their levers are not explicitly modeled in our design of experiments and in the mathematical model that's used, then that's going to be a very difficult thing for them. The only one place that I see an exception there is in doing this using machine learning methods for molecule design. There, it's complicated enough, the system is complicated enough to map from sequence to function that you can get away with using a machine learning model and having a model propose new mutations. Even there, sometimes our wet lab colleagues will ask us, well, can you map those proposed mutations onto a structure and see, tell me what you think the effect of that mutation might be. And at that point, we either make a best guess from our own limited knowledge of structural biology, or we actually bring in a computational structure biologist to help us help work with us on that problem. So explainable AI that may be hot in the world of tech is actually kind of useless in my mind for research. Nothing, it's not a ding against those methods. It's just they're not useful for what we're working on. For your work. Yeah. Yeah, for our work. And we actually end up using a lot of interpretation methods that have been developed in the bioinformatics world instead, like using what do you call those seek logos, right? Uh, to show that here's the bias of the designed library versus a random library, for example. Hopefully that answered the question. Definitely. And so we've been talking around machine learning and deep learning in your work. I'd like to reason through how important machine learning and deep learning are actually are to your work. I think there are a couple of ways to think about this. One is how much lift do you get using ML and DL from non-machine learning techniques? The other kind of way of thinking about it, I suppose, is a lot of people when they talk about doing machine learning and that type of stuff, maybe just doing a logistic regression or something along those lines. So what do you actually use that may be more sophisticated than non-ML techniques or baseline ML techniques? Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about Lyft because I think that's a great entry point because it really talks about what's the value proposition of using machine learning models to design your molecule libraries versus getting a human versus just doing random search. That was exactly the thing that my colleagues and I tested in a paper that we published, I think, 2020 or 2019 in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Catalysis. Yes, it was a, a catalysis journal. And one of the things that we actually set out to do was to engineer an enzyme to catalyze a reaction that we wanted. We actually benchmarked a few methods. One was a very expensive deep mutational scan, which is essentially creating every single possible one mutation variant of the protein. That thing cost $20,000 per experiment, per lab experiment minimum, but for just ordering the genes, by the way, not ordering, 
we're not talking about like wow yeah we're not talking about running the samples on a wet lab robot plus more so that those experiments are really expensive so we benchmarked that and then we did another thing where we said well we have this start and so we have this starter data what if we trained a machine learning model to predict function from sequence or enzyme catalysis from sequence and use the machine learning model to filter out non-high performing new mutations that we proposed that were combinations of existing mutations. So we did one test where we did that machine learning guided strategy. We call it machine directed evolution. Then we did traditional directed evolution, which is to generate just purely random mutants inside there, inside for next round. And we did a third round, third test where we we actually did this thing where we took a look at the enzyme structure and tried to compose mutations based on whether they were close to the enzymes catalysis site or far away from the catalysis site. And we combined them in like different ways. And one of the things we figured out was the following. You can measure 10 times fewer things and get a, a better shot on goal of finding high performing enzymes if you use machine directed evolution versus just doing a random search. But then here's where the twist comes in. Random enzyme search from the perspective of gene synthesis Random sequence search from the perspective of gene synthesis is actually very cheap. You can throw a piece of DNA into a tube, add an enzyme that copies imperfectly and get a crap ton of poorly performing or high performing variants inside that tube for less than 10 bucks. But to order 200 variants that are predicted as high performing by machine learning model, costs at least $10,000. So so there's actually a a cost trade-off that we have to consider, right? When do you go in and you use a high-performing machine learning model? And when do you go in and use a not just random search? That is going to be specific for every single protein. It depends on a lot of factors. How expensive is the experiment is the biggest thing. The cost of making the variance is one part. The cost of measuring is another part. The cost of growing the cells and et cetera, like those all have to be taken into account. So it was a really cool thing. So 10 times less, 10 times fewer things that you can order as long as your experiments are actually, as long as your experiments are expensive enough to make it worthwhile. So that's the part about the lift. I forgot what the other part was though. And does that generalize across your work as well? Like all the different types of... I think so. Yeah. Amazing. That idea that the cost of the experiment really matters for justifying whether or not to use machine learning methods is pretty generalizable. Amazing. The other part of the question is when we're talking about machine learning, in your case, I presume we're not talking about logistic regression. Right, 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 right. What are we talking about? So back then when we did that paper, it was a deep learning model to embed the protein sequences followed by a random forest model on top. And there was very... From viewed from 2023, there's actually very little justification for doing that kind of thing anymore. So, but the embedding set, is that like like some sequence to VEC type thing? Is that what we're talking about? Yes, yes, that's right. There was a model that my intern Arkady, now my colleague as well, Arkady and I had worked on together. It was published from the George Church Lab. We re-implemented in JAX, sped it up, made it very useful for ourselves, and then open sourced it 
And what was cool was we were able to like get numerical embeddings from the UniRep model is specifically trained for protein sequences, the protein language model, as we call it. So, and we didn't really do much in the way of like comparing that UniRep embeddings to one hot to whatever it's, I think those are not the most important question. The most important question was really, is this machine learning thing worth it, right? Like, is it worth it or is it not? So we just went ahead, used the UniRep embeddings, threw a random forest model on top, very quickly get to this point where generating sequences and scoring them and prioritizing them using this very simple machine learning workflow. Fast forward to 2023, I've actually more or less abandoned scikit-learn for anything that's molecule design related work, because I think we have a next generation system in my mind, I have a next generation system in my mind that I really want to build out, which is fully differentiable end to end that lets us take in surrogate models for any experimental data and use it to optimize the sequence that will maximize all of the surrogate models outputs. And if we can build that system, that would be the best. And so the use of random forests, they're non-differentiable in scikit-learn, so we can't use them. So we just use the most powerful overpowered sequence to function predictor module and use the same thing for every single assay. And we use that to optimize, jointly optimize this like sequence, protein sequence or mRNA sequence that we want to generate. So everything has to be differentiable. And so, yeah, and it has to be differentiable and it has to be dumb and simple at the same time. Yet it has to be powerful enough at the same time. So it's like, well, we standardize the architecture of that neural net and use it for every single assay. And that gives us dumb and simple and gives us powerful enough every single in exactly the same way. We use protein language model embeddings and standardize on one or two of them. That again gives us dumb and simple while also being super powerful. So if we're able to, to get to that point, then we can build this bot, this machine that, uh, that you can feed it a bunch of assay data and a target protein that we want to optimize and maybe an hour of optimization with no human intervention later, you get 50 candidates that, or K number of candidates that you want that you can test in a lab that all have a high chance of maximizing the surrogate model outputs. That's what we're trying to go for. That sounds amazing, man. So I want to move on now to talk briefly, this will be a challenge, briefly about Bayesian inference in your line of work. And for listeners out there, Eric and I talk a lot about Bayesian inference together, and we're in fact very excited to be writing a book on Bayesian inference together and we're not going to dive deep into in, into that today or dive deep into Bayesian inference. I, I said to Eric before we started today that we, he might need to come back sometime for us to have kind of the conversation about Bayesian inference, the conversation it deserves to have. But in lieu of that conversation, Eric, maybe you could tell us about just a bit about the importance of Bayesian inference to your work combined with the ML and the deep learning stuff you do. Yeah, absolutely. I think I alluded it to alluded to this point just now that like biological experiments they cost a lot of money. One experiment can be anywhere from like a thousand to twenty to thirty thousand to even maybe a hundred thousand dollars. There is one that actually cost us two hundred thousand in just gene synthesis recently. So Bayesian inference is really important for us. Bayesian specifically, Bayesian estimation. When Bayesian estimation, we use it primarily in the structuring of wet lab experiment data. When we collect experiment data, sometimes we get if we're in a good day, we get triplicate measurements, which gives us n equals three for each sample. If we're in a setting where 
the experiment costs way too much. Sometimes we only get like duplicate measurements. And when you have that low of an N, you need to do all sorts of statistical, it's not trickery, but you need robust statistical methods that help you deal with these low N situations, low replicate number situations. And so hierarchical models for estimation really help here because hierarchical models allow us to naturally impose regularization, which helps us avoid being fooled by randomness and injecting priors into our statistical estimation that are biologically plausible for the system that we're modeling is also really, really important here. Canned statistical methods with p-values and such, I've been fooled by them before. And for that reason, I don't trust them anymore. So any project that we our team works on, I insist that if there is wet lab experimental data for which we need to estimate a property of interest for a molecule from that data, we have to use Bayesian hierarchical methods in the analysis of that data. It gives us full transparency, also makes the analysis much more robust. Absolutely. And I, at the risk of, I don't want to dive too deep, but I, I do think it's worth saying a few words about cancer, um hand hypothesis testing, frequentist hypo hypothesis testing. One thing to state is that in these tests that can be used correctly, there are often a lot of assumptions built into them, which are opaque when you do Bayesian inference and Bayesian hypothesis testing, you're actually forced to make your assumptions explicit. So you can check them even down to, you know, you do a t-test and you're assuming something about normality and all, all of these types of things, right? Whereas you're forced to make your assumptions explicit. I think it's probably also worth saying a word about the choice of priors. You said something which I think is like one of the common and occasionally naive, for lack of a better term, objections to Bayesian inference comes down to the choice of the prior. You didn't only say using a prior, you said using a biologically plausible and credible prior, right? So maybe, I see, that is so key to the conversation we're having. So maybe you could give a brief example. Or maybe I'll give one, which is, you know, one example that I use that we've used together is um the beak length of Galapagos finches, right? Yeah. And so that, the first thing we know is that that's going to be strictly positive, right? So whatever, if we're estimating that, the prior has to be greater than zero. We know that'll be under a certain length. So there are certain things we can say about that to inform our, our prior. But there are examples where you know the prior would fit a certain distribution or this type of stuff, right? So maybe you can say a few words about that choice. Yeah, definitely. Let's say we're estimating the size of our cell, right? Like as another example, cells we know should not be on the order. Our, most cells that we have seen are on the orders of microns in size. So if you put a prior that is strictly centered on like picometer sizes, that's implausible. If you put a prior that's sized on light year sizes, that's also implausible. All right. So biologically relevant priors are like very important. And there's a, I forgot what the book is, but there's like a quantitative bio book that talks about like the scale of everything biological in nature. And getting familiar with those numbers was super helpful for me. Right. Like knowing that like cells are micron sized, uh, proteins are nano sized, that tissues go from anywhere from millimeter to meter sized. Right. Like that's knowing the scale of stuff is really important. Right. Also, temperature scales, enzyme kinetics, activity scales. Right. Like those were really, really, really helpful for me as I go about my conversations with my colleagues in the wet lab. Yeah, I don't know if this is the book you're talking about, but for my colleague and friend of mine, Rob Phillips, with a colleague of his, wrote a book. He's at Caltech, Cell Biology by the Numbers. Yes, yes. 
Beautiful book. That's the one. Beautiful book. Yes, that's the one. And all of Rob's work. Sell by by the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll include a link to that in the show notes and I'll include it in the chat now. So that's super cool. Rob's a legend as well. So let's, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to get you back to talk more about Bayes, my friend. But where we're going to jump into now is it'll be interesting to just, we know you work in Python and a few of the tools you use, but maybe you could tell us a bit about what your software stack looks like. And in particular, how this plays into the fact that you actually treat your data science projects as software, right? Yeah, definitely. So one of the lessons, of course, that I've learned from my years in grad school and at NIBR is that to operationalize something over and over and over in a reliable fashion means we need to use, we need to treat, we need, means we need to develop software. That's what software engineering and development is concerned with primarily. How do you make a system that's reliable that does a thing over and over and over and over reliably? So for that, so earlier on, I mentioned that we work exclusively in Python and that we use PyTorch. Uh, well, I didn't mention that, but we use differentiate, we need differentiability in all of our models. So we use PyTorch exclusively. I wanted to bring in Jax, but then, you know, they're not, their auto diff systems are not compatible. So we, we, and we had a bunch of stuff already in PyTorch. And so we use PyTorch for everything. And if people want to learn more about Jax, you actually, do you still have some tutorials online? I do. For Jax? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'll include them in the show notes as well. Some written ones. I didn't, yeah. I haven't made video recordings of them or like t taught them anywhere except for one, I think Magical NumPy with Jax. But yeah, but Jax is pretty cool. I actually prefer Jax over PyTorch because of its way, the way that it, it's shaped my way of thinking about models. But back to our tech stack, we also use Typer. All of our work gets operationalized as command line interface tools. But just to be sure, we don't ship command line interface tools to our colleagues. We actually have infrastructure at Moderna that will automatically wrap our command line interface tools using a configuration file. They will wrap our CLIs to be web ready. So there it will, we will automatically get a web skin in front of our CLIs. That's super cool. And those things can be run on the cloud at scale. You can submit like millions of jobs at one shot. And that thing is robust. It's really, really cool. It's like, it's got also API, it's API ready, which means our software engineering colleagues can call on those, what we call compute tasks and make them consume the outputs of those models directly. So for that, we need, we also use Docker. We've, Gone in when I when I first joined, one of the first things that I helped out with was to standardize the tech stack, right? Nipping this problem early in the bud allowed us to move fast downstream. So everyone made a few sacrifices. We standardized on using VS Code because that allowed for live coding collaboration. We standardized on PyTorch. So I gave up Jax. My manager, Andrew, gave up Emacs or Vim or whatever one of the two because that was his preferred IDE. We standardized on Typer for its modern interface. We standardized on Docker, Conda, all of that stuff. So there's almost like to go from project development of code to deployment, you can prototype your stuff in a notebook, show it to your colleagues. And when you're ready, make a CLI out of it. And then bang, you can deploy it on our internal infrastructure. And now suddenly non-technical people non-technically inclined people can go in and click a button, fill out a form, click a button, and let compute jobs run in the background and get back what you're what they're looking for. It's pretty cool. It's really, really cool. Amazing. 
I just wanted to, you may have mentioned this earlier, where you've said several times that you require your models to be differentiable. Could you remind me why that's the case? Yeah, jointly differentiable. So let's say, for example, like one of those things that we want to build is like ability to design a protein to make, to satisfy multiple properties of interest. So if you want to jointly optimize that protein to maximize all of those outputs, ideally, you would like to find the gradient of your protein with respect to your output, or maybe more precisely, the gradient of your protein embedding with respect to each, all of the outputs. So now you can set up a bunch of partial derivatives, right? And do hill climbing on your embedding space to optimize that protein sequence. So all of the models have to be differentiable in order for that reality to become true. That's, by the way, not the only way to design proteins. You can do things like Monte Carlo sampling-like methods that also use gradients. They don't vanish like your podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Hopefully they don't explode. That's right. <laughs> that would be mind-blowing. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There are multiple ways to use models to design proteins and like hill climbing is just but one of them, including injecting noise with Monte Carlo methods is another. You can ignore the gradients if you want to. I think that's not desirable though, just computationally wasteful. Yep. Great. I'd love to wrap. We were going to talk about some institutional and cultural questions. Yeah. You used to be an individual contributor and now you're a hiring manager and team lead. Maybe you could tell us a bit about this transition, because I know this is top of mind for a lot of people and what the trade-offs are between these roles. Yeah. My running joke is I accepted the Moderna role knowing that becoming a hiring manager, becoming a team lead would be the price to pay for that. <laughs> My natural inclinations are actually to just do coding work. I think over the year and a half that I've been in this position, uh, it's been a learning journey to adjust to being a team lead. Being an individual contributor, you're very... At least for myself, I care very much about the quality of code, the level of documentation, testing, that sort of thing, how well organized and refactored that code base is. And I can maintain very tight control on those aspects on any project that I work on. I also get a lot more freedom on to, as an individual contributor, to go and experiment with new tech, right? Things that are of interest and such. I think. Moving in, or, or rather that was more cultural as part of the, the time at Niber where the tech stack was not very well defined, right? Now that we've come in and like really standardized the tech stack at Moderna for the data science team, there's some things that we just don't ask questions about. We don't ask questions about like which CLI tool because it's not so, it's not central to the way that we work. We just need a very good CLI tool that works and run with it for a few years. So that's one. As a, team lead, I can't tightly control the quality of every single project that the whole team works on. So it's now instead my responsibility to go in and coach my teammates to be able to produce code that is of that level of quality. When it comes to choosing modeling methods, it's a similar thing, right? Some people will say, we want to use a bespoke model for every single new problem that comes up, that's not sustainable in the long run, even though it's like the most principled. Then at the same time, there are other people who will just say random forest everything. And that's <laughs> dumb and simple and, and like scalable, but sometimes it's not appropriate, right? And so finding the balance between dumb and simple and powerful 
and appropriate to solve the problem is a thing that I could have very tight control over as an individual contributor. But now as a team lead, I have to do a lot more work to coach my teammates to make these modeling decisions. And sometimes the modeling decisions that I would make would be different from the modeling decisions that they would make, partly because of familiarity, but also partly because of a broader vision or goal that we're trying to achieve, right? Which is like fully differentiable everything. I notice that if my teammates don't understand this idea of fully differentiable everything, I have to go in and show the fundamentals of like what it means for why it's so important for differentiability, right? And I've done these things where I, I did these three hour long at work, three hour, two hour, three hour long workshops in the afternoon on Friday, walking through like how deep learning works, how different, how gradients flow from output to input, et cetera, et cetera, through your parameters, et cetera. And it's a different type of challenge. What I will say is that the change has been quite satisfying when I see the fruit of labor, right? Seeing others get this idea of Bayesian methods and why it's better, and then being able to build a model without my oversight or intervention. And they would only, such that they only have to come to me and go, hey, I built this model. I think this is the right model. What do you think, right? Like, I don't have to go and say direct, like, this is the prior, this is the prior, this is the prior, this is the equation, et cetera. They can do that on their own now, right? And that's actually very satisfying because now they're much more independent. And now collectively, our team can do much more together than if I were doing it alone, right? And I can't slice my brain 12 ways to handle 12 projects, but the team together can do that. And as long as we're all constantly leveling up our skills, then that is something very, very satisfying. So that has been like my biggest takeaway thus far. Helping, helping my teammates to grow, to produce their best technical work possible has been like really, really rewarding. Yeah, great. So as a final question, one thing I noticed when you were talking about the types of skills needed in your line of work, there seems like a heavy amount of domain expertise, even down to like biochemistry and these types of things that in other S, in other career paths in data science, we may not actually like, we know that domain expertise is important, but you don't necessarily need an advanced degree in the domain to do that. So maybe using that as a launching pad, you could tell us about how you think about hiring Moderna. Yeah, definitely. I wrote an essay actually that if you would like to, Hugo, you can include those in the show notes. I will, and I'll actually include in the YouTube chat currently as well. That's the hiring and interviewing data scientists essay. That's right. I wrote it because my teammates were going to do hiring in my absence, three months of paternity leave. And so I wrote this essay primarily for them, but also to for the future as well, and to help others who figure out like what how we're thinking about hiring. So there are five axes. Domain expertise matters a ton for the research team. It actually may not matter much for like someone who's working on legal projects or someone who's working on commercial area projects, right? Like uh, the vocabulary, the depth of concepts, you know, that we need to master, very different between different fields, right? So as a team, I actually require prior scientific training at the minimum bachelor's level, if not even then master's level. In most cases, what I actually really, really want to see is someone who's done wet lab work before and 
made a successful switch into doing computation and can produce pretty good code and knows one or two very well differentiated modeling methods. So the scientific knowledge is like a must have and having at least a bachelor's degree is like the bare minimum. If you come work with us with that level, my goal has always been to help you get the Moderna PhD or the whatever company PhD, right? So after a few years of training under me, my goal is that you should be operating just like someone who graduated with a PhD. So that's uh, especially from a scientific knowledge perspective. The other four axes are as follow. People skills, communication skills, coding skills, and modeling skills. When it comes to people skills, really what this is all about is like your ability to handle challenging situations. Those, I think, are very revealing and telling about how a person handles themselves. Work is not easy. There are going to be tense situations always. I try to make sure that we don't have tense situations within the team, but externally, who knows what will happen, right? So that's a very important thing. Their communication skills, especially with wet lab scientists, really matters. And this is why I think someone who's come in having done wet lab work before will really understand all of the levers that a wet lab scientist have, you know, will understand intuitively, oh yeah, I shouldn't go in a particular direction because that's going to be useless for the wet lab scientists, right? Like it's, those are the things that are really important. When they communicate with them, they also understand what a wet lab scientist will intuitively get versus not get. So being able to communicate at multiple levels as well is also important. But I think primarily being able to communicate with wet lab scientists is important. All of our work is produced as code. And so therefore, we need to ensure good code quality because no one will stay at a company forever in this economic climate, right? So your work will eventually have a high probability of being transitioned into someone else's hands. If we want to ensure that that second person is able to ramp up on a project, there has to be great documentation. If we want to ensure that the next person knows exactly where to modify a code to satisfy evolving business requests, they need to have good code organization. And if they want to make sure that their code doesn't break existing, their code changes break existing functionality, you need to have tests. So all three things are required. I recognize that like not everybody comes in knowing how to test, knowing how to document, knowing how to refactor code. But I have figured out a way of interviewing that will elicit these properties out of a person without, while also being in a, giving the candidate like home side advantage. You should check out check out the essay. That's a lot of detail inside there. Fantastic. And then the final thing, final thing that we look for is special sauce modeling skills. There are too many candidates who know how to use scikit-learn. So at this point, scikit-learn is not differentiating. It's not special sauce. There are not very many candidates who know how to wrangle a graph neural net and put data into a graph neural net and know how to train it effectively. So Graph neural nets, as an example, are a special sauce modeling skills. There was a candidate who I interviewed who was very well versed in Gaussian process models and in fact was able to modify a vanilla GP in such a way that it satisfied the domain requirements of her PhD thesis. And that I considered special sauce probabilistic modeling skills, right? This is not your vanilla grab GPyTorch and run with it. This is grab GPyTorch and modify it in such a way that actually works for your domain. And I love hearing stories of how people are able to do that. Right. So 
that's the fifth aspect. You're having something special sauce that is differentiating from the rest of the crowd. I love it. Yeah. So those, those are the five main axes. And then there are other considerations that are not amongst these five. But I think anyone who's interested can go check out the essay. Yep. Fantastic. And there's so much within that. But I do think testing software is something which data scientists in general as a discipline, we need to become far, far better at. Also, testing data. This is something that data test is something which, you know, I've taught with you, I've TA'd for you, PyCon several years ago. But these are the types of uh, several tools such as great expectations, which are kind of up and coming, which are great for this type of thing. But it's still not something we've really, I mean, a lot of big tech companies do it in-house with their own proprietary tools and that type of stuff. But data testing isn't something I think we've really reckoned with as an industry. And we need to sooner rather than later. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And the fact that there are lots of there's Great Expectations and Pandera, which are the two that immediately come to mind. The fact that these two tools exist for testing data is like amazing because they're open source and they're you know freely available. I think the probably the main challenge here is that like we don't appreciate data as a first class asset like we do code, maybe, right? And that data also feels a little bit more nebulous to test compared to code can break in much more subtle ways. It's the real world. Yeah. It's the real world coming into software, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's entropic. It is. Absolutely. So I think that's probably one of the biggest, bigger challenges right there. But yeah, I don't have a good solution for this. I just know that it's a big problem. And definitely Pandera is on the list of tools that we use for validating our data. Awesome. Also, <laughs> beg a lot with our colleagues, please standardize your Excel spreadsheets, right? Because that's, <laughs> that's, that's how science is done, by the way, in Excel spreadsheets right now. Data is collected and stored in Excel spreadsheets, yeah. unless it's like those large-scale systems. And they're not formatted exactly the same way and processed with code from the raw form. It's very challenging to set up reliable systems that run over and over and over. Totally. So look, I have one more question, and this is kind of a teaser for something we may chat about downstream at some point. You mentioned that when people on your team start realizing the power of Bayesian techniques, that you find that really, really exciting. And I feel like Bayesian inference, it's so nascent in the adoption curve as to what it will be in several years. So I wonder if you can maybe give just a hint or a teaser of how you think where you think Bayesian inference is now in terms of adoption and what you'd like to see in the future? Oh, I haven't thought about that question, Hugo. <laughs> Let me see if I can like blabber something Yeah, that is not from GPT-3. If anyone can do it, it's you. And uh, sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> All right. So Bayesian methods make sense because you can write explicit models and you can't be lazy. I think overcoming the human laziness factor is the first part, and that's a non-tech problem. That is an education problem. So making... And an incentive problem as, as well, right? Like, so collaborative interruption here, whatever they call it. But like when I work in biology, my biologist colleagues didn't even have... Like they were at the bench the whole time. They barely had time to do analysis or experimental design and barely had time to learn the right things to do so that they couldn't, there wasn't time to take an entire course on Bayesian inference or this type of stuff. They had to do it, learn it on weekends and that type of stuff. So I think there's actually, and then on top of that, being able to put 
those types of statistical skills into a curriculum or into a course is actually challenging because the courses are already too full and there are advocates in at a faculty level for each part of the curriculum. So you need to convince someone there to take it out. So there's a whole set of mixed incentives, which means that it's actually very difficult to learn unless you're doing it at 11 p.m. and ran. Yeah, that's right. Which is actually how I learned Bayesian methods as well. Me too. At 11 p.m. every night, <laughs> three hours, sci-fi tutorials. Yeah. The second thing that I think we need to overcome is the ease of that objection that you can make overcoming that ease of overcoming the objection that you can make your data say anything with the right priors. So one of the things that one of my ex colleagues had mentioned before was he was doing the sensitivity analysis, which required him to change priors and change prior distributions and their parameterizations and see how those changes affected the final output, the statistical inference result, uh, the inferences that he was trying to go for. And I find that incredibly tedious to write over and over that code, in which is at its core essentially the same, mutate your model in a certain way and run MCMC. I find it really tedious to write that code. And we don't have good tooling for doing sensitivity analysis of arbitrary Bayesian models, right? Like if you think about us writing this in PyMC, I would have to go in and tweak my Gaussian 01 to be Gaussian 02, Gaussian 0.11, Gaussian 0.21, Gaussian 0.31, right? Like that just doesn't sound right, right? Like how do we figure out and automatically elicit what the right bounds are for our sensitivity analysis and build out the machinery such that you fit your desired model along with all the other possible models automatically without needing to rewrite more code, right? And then the when it comes to that sensitivity analysis problem, I mean, I've done this before in grad school where it's like, yeah, I tweak my parameters and I get a whole bunch of curves and I can see how the system changes with different parameterizations, but then tying that back to, well, is it reasonable, right? Like, are these parameter ranges reasonable? That doesn't seem to me to be like a, a problem of technical tooling missingness, right? That's, is a thing reasonable is fundamentally philosophical and domain specific. And again, just comes back to, well, how do I answer that question? I need to know something about the problem that I'm dealing with. Is my prior for bacterial cell size reasonable? I need to know something about that, right? And are the bounds that I've chosen reasonable, right? Like, and do they, what's the variation in the out? I can report the variation in the output based on the variation on the inputs, but like, is it all reasonable? Still needs like domain expertise to evaluate. And so that third problem is like automating figuring out ways to speed up, not automate, but speed up the determination of whether our priors were reasonable and our sensitivity analysis made sense. I think it's like a, another huge thing that needs to be done. There's probably more that I'm missing on the horizon, but those are like the big problems that I've seen in like building models and being deeply dissatisfied with them and not having them, not being able to muster the will to go and further test them as extensively as I would like to. Absolutely. I love it, Eric. And that 
Let's consider that a little teaser for hopefully getting you back sometime to talk, to talk in depth, maybe when our book's coming out, to talk really about the ins and outs of Bayesian inference and the utility we see in it, past, present and future. Yeah, totally. I'd like to thank everyone for joining today and thanks for the really cool questions. And I'd like to thank you, Eric, for your time. It's always a pleasure to chat. But thank you for coming and chatting on the podcast. It was so much fun and I learned so much as always. My pleasure, man. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle. And I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.